And we are going to be continuing our series up here on Christian virtues, the virtues that we should be signaling to the world differently. You know, the world's got all their signals and stuff to let people know where they stand politically and sexually and all over the place. But as Christians, we have a whole different set of signals to the world that say, I follow Jesus. I commit my life to the way of Jesus. And so today we're going to be specifically looking at love, which was obvious based on the songs that we were singing today. And I have to say, I think love is probably the most twisted and distorted word in the English language that we have completely ruined. We've taken all meaning out of what it is because everybody has their own definition. So I don't just like ice cream. I tell people I love ice cream. And I love the Packers, and I love my geese, and I love my wife. And if she was here, she should be really offended that I would use the word love to relate all those things. Obviously, when I say those, you understand there's different uh, categories that we have for that, different means. But as a society, we just throw this word love around in so many different ways that the word has essentially lost its meaning. For those of you in the dating world, you love your boyfriend or girlfriend until you don't and the love just kind of ends. I had a great moment. This was my one of my favorite parenting moments. My son Wilson was a freshman in high school and he asked to go to the mall with friends. And I said, sure, I'll pick you up from the mall. And as I get to the curb to pick him up, he's standing holding hands with a girl. And I was like, well, this is new. And he walks to the car, and just before he gets in the car, he gives her a kiss on the lips, says, I love you, and gets into the car with a huge ear-to-ear grin on his face. And I said, who's that? Oh, it's, I don't remember her name. Uh, They were together for four days total. (laughs) I said, so when did you start dating her? He said, today. I said, so you told her you love her? Was that the first time? Yep. I said, you have no idea what love means. Never use that word with a girl in high school again. <laughs> he, like, it was just kind of this idea. He didn't even know what it meant. So he hears me say to Michelle, I love you. And so he says, I love you to this girl and gives her his first kiss right in front of me, in front of them all. I thought you played that very uncool. They made it four days um, and I can understand why. And to most of the world today, that's what love is. It's just this feeling, this emotion, this exciting and intoxicating passion for something or someone. And so by that definition, he was in love, in love, and he wanted the whole world to know it. And uh, that's what so many of these shows on TV are about. And we watch this trash where they just take 20 really sexy people and they put them on a beach and they mix in a bunch of alcohol and they say, in six weeks, you too can find true love. And for some reason, millions of people tune in to all these different shows that go on season after season, year after year, thinking, well, that's maybe what love is. And that's how I'll fall into love with that one perfect person by putting a bunch of attractive people on a beach with alcohol. Please, that's not how it works. Now, it's not just this hypersexualized version of love that we have in America. We make a mess of this word in all sorts of other ways too. In our parenting, 
for example. The world now says if you truly love your child, then you will give them everything that they want. And you'll put them in every activity that they want. And every hard thing that comes up in front of them, you'll help them through it or you'll push them through it. Or if there's a consequence because a teacher says, hey, you did bad, you're going to call that teacher and say, how dare you punish my child? He's a great child. And so that's what the world is says. That's how you love your child best. You make everything easy for them. And as a result, these kids have now reached adulthood. And they don't know how to adult because their parents have done it for them. But we thought that's what love had to be, doing everything on their behalf. That's not love. That's made a mess of their growing up experience. Another distortion of love can be found in the popular slogan, and it's a virtue signal, love is love. You guys have heard that, love is love. What that basically means is, who are you to say or define who or what or how I love? So if I want to love a hippopotamus, then I can love a hippopotamus. And that's just between me and that beautiful animal and you can't say anything about it. How dare you question me? And so in that definition that we've really kind of come to here in America now, love is completely undefined, uncontrolled, and unaccountable to anybody except myself. But here's the thing. While the world may have kind of lost its mind when it comes to love, God is the one who has defined who we can love and how we are supposed to love. And so this is, I know, our third week in this series on virtue signals, but love is actually the greatest of the virtues, we're told. If you remember where this series began in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, and you can turn to 1 Corinthians 13 right now. We'll be there for several passages. It said, and now these three remain, and this is where we've done this series, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So why does Paul say that of these three virtues that he calls out, that love is the greatest, it is the highest of them all? And he actually has given that answer earlier in this chapter. So many of you might know that 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of known as the love chapter. It's the passage that's read in many, many weddings. And people love to read about love from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so right now we're going to go to verse 1 of chapter 13 where Paul kind of tells us why love is so significant. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so these verses come immediately after Paul has just defined all the spiritual gifts that the church in Corinth was operating in tongues and prophecy and faith. And he's saying, you can speak in tongues, but if you're not a loving person, it doesn't matter. You can prophesy, but if you're not a loving person, you're no extra spiritual uh, person. If you have this great faith, but you don't show kindness and love and grace to people, 
then you have gained nothing. This is a challenging verse for a lot of churchgoers who have built their identity on their righteousness. I go to church every Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and I memorize all my Bible verses and I put money in the offering plate every single time that it is passed around and I help people out and I shine up my shoes for Sunday services. I put on my Sunday best. But if you still fail at the most basic act of what it means to be a Christian, to share love with others, then Paul is saying, all of your righteousness is for nothing. Love must be at the core of your character of who you are. All your efforts to be obedient and to be righteous are worthless apart from love. Our godliness is worthless apart from love. And you understand that if you've ever come across a church person. You know, that person who's supposed to be a Christian that is so perfect and they're always there and they hold their Bible and they serve in the church and they've been a leader in the church or they've taught Sunday school and they know every single verse to throw at you when you do something wrong. But when they have no grace and no kindness and you're like, that person is so mean. Why are they so mean? That's the very reason why Paul says you can do all these righteous acts But if you do it apart from love, it is just self-righteousness. And that's not what we as Christians are to be chasing. Those those righteous acts become self-righteous. And so to outsiders looking in, when that's all they see in the pews of the church, then they don't want to be with those people and they don't want to worship that God that those people say they worship. So, where did Paul get this idea that love is the greatest of the virtues? This isn't an idea that's completely unique to him. He's simply building on so many of the commands that Jesus has given. You see, Jesus talks about love a lot. And specifically, he defines for us very clearly in the passages we're going to look at in the Gospels who we are to love, who's supposed to be the object of our love, And so we're going to look at some well-known passages now where Jesus teaches about love. First, we have to begin with Jesus teaching us that we are to love the Lord. That's first and foremost. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 30. Jesus says, or here we see, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus, is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So first and most importantly, we love God. But we don't love God like we love ice cream, okay? We have to understand, we are called to love God with every fiber of our being. And I think that's something we're not used to. We use love so oddly and it's so uh, easily lost or just we say, oh, that person is out of my life and we're done loving them and we move on. And, but with God, every fiber of our being, all of our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind should be focused on loving Him, on making Him first and primary in our lives. 
Everything we do should be seeking to please Him because we're fully devoted to Him. We're so grateful to Him for everything that He's done to us. We love God first. But the first command to love God makes a lot of sense. But in the very next verse, Jesus tells us also to extend our love to our neighbor. So the very next verse, to continue where I was just reading, is verse 31. He says, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Now, it's not too hard to love your sweet older neighbor on the one side of your house that is so kind and they bring you cookies on occasion. And, you know, when it's fall time, they bake you some uh, banana bread and bring it over and you share coffee. Like, of course we love those neighbors. But we all have another set of neighbors. We all have a grumpy neighbor. The one who says, you got to get your leaves off my yard. Your tree is dropping leaves on my yard. They're that neighbor that tends to complain all the time or sees a negative thing in everything that you're doing. I had uh, at my last church, there was a family who actually, if their kids were playing a sport and the soccer ball went across the yard, they had to leave it. Because if they went onto the grass to get that soccer ball, they got yelled at. The ball was just gone and it'd be thrown in the trash. Like that's their neighbor. And you hear that and your jaws kind of drop. But Jesus says, you love your neighbor. And it doesn't matter if you like your neighbor, <laughs> if your neighbor is your neighbor. If they're in proximity to you, then you need to show love to them. And to drive that point home, he gave us the parable of the prodigal son. Or not the prodigal son, sorry, the parable of the good Samaritan. With the good Samaritan, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They saw them as half-breeds. They'd mixed with the, uh, all the Assyrians, and so they're just like, they're terrible people. But Jesus tells the story of a man's beat up, robbed, and left for dead, and it's a Samaritan who comes through, sees him, and he's the one who cares for his wounds, bandages them up, and takes him to an inn to recover, who pays the bill. Would the Jew ever do that to the, for the Samaritan? Probably not. Not in that day. But Jesus is showing that's the kind of love that we're to have, even for those people that maybe aren't the easiest to love. Next, Jesus gives us another command. So it's not just God, our neighbor, but it's one another. And this is, there's so many one another passages. And when we read all these times, Jesus says one another. He's referring to those within the family of faith. At that time he was saying it, it was to his disciples, to his followers, what would become the church. And there's a whole bunch of special commands for how we are to interact with one another within the church. He says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Pretty repetitive there. I think he's trying to make a point. How we treat each other within our church family should be observably different to the world all around. 
And so obviously we have to give more than just lip service to how we love each other within our family of faith. If all we do is greet each other and say, hey, good morning, great to see you, but that's it. And our actions towards one another, one another never extends beyond just niceties in the church foyer. The world would never be able to recognize us by our love. So when Jesus says that should be our mark, that should be the signal to the world, our love, that needs to be something that's observable, that's tangible, that they can see we're taking care of our own in a way that the world doesn't. That's what it means to love one another. And finally, we're called to even love our enemies. Well, Jesus told us to love our neighbor, he knew that there's always a little carve-out exemption we make in our minds, but he doesn't mean those people. It couldn't be those awful, terrible, rude people who hate me and treat me so unfairly. But he doesn't skip over them e either. In fact, he's very direct and succinct in making sure that we have no carve-out principle for exemptions of who we are to love. In Matthew 5, 43, he begins, You've heard that it is said, love your neighbor. Obviously, he'd already had that teaching. And hate your enemy. That's their own teaching. That's what the Jews were saying, the Pharisees. It, love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? I think Jesus makes a really good point here. He's saying, look, the world takes care of their own. The most evil people in their own little circle of evil, awful people, they take care of each other. If that's all you do, you're not any better than those who don't follow me. If you want to be different, if you want to be set apart, if you want to be seen as my disciples, do what nobody else is doing. And that is even loving those that you can't stand. Those who make your life so hard. Your passive-aggressive boss who always makes your job harder than it needs to be. Or that kid who's bullying you at school or maybe on social media and the group chat is always just making little side comments that make our put-downs. Maybe your sister-in-law who's always correcting your parenting. Maybe those who are politically different than you that make you uncomfortable, that are all over social media talking about transgenderism or gay rights or Black Lives Matter or supporting illegal immigrants and letting everybody through. And I understand like those things we can have a difference of opinion on. Just because you love them doesn't mean that you condone what they believe. As Christians, we still stand for truth, and we're going to talk about that in a future week. But we have to figure out how we have a disposition of love even towards those that we completely disagree with. That's what we're called to do. The Jews were called to even love the Samaritans, to even love the Gentiles. And we have to be able to love those who seem so far from us, who disagree with us on so many different things, who treat us so poorly. But we have to figure that out. And I know loving the unlovable is really hard. 
Like we can sit here and I've got people in my mind that I'm like, how do I love that person well and still keep a boundary? And I'm sure right now you have people in your mind that you're like, but Ryan, you don't know this person and what they've done to me. Fortunately, since love is a choice and it's not just this idea or emotion that we can fall into or out of, we actually have a little bit more control over who we love and how we love. And so, if we don't have any idea how to do it, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, lays out the playbook for us. He tells us, this is what your love should look like. So you can run this person through this grid and figure out how you can love them better. He picks it up in verse 4 of chapter 13. Love is patient. You don't rush that person. You don't hold that person to a standard or an expectation that's only for you and then say, well, you don't measure up. You keep failing me. Love is kind. That's such a basic attitude this world lacks anymore. Just a smile to a random stranger in the store is almost alien to people anymore. Just being kind, being nice, holding the door open for people is something that this world lacks and we can bring. It does not envy. When good things happen to that person, you don't need to feel jealous about it and get upset. It does not boast. When bad things happen to that person, you should not smugly sit there and smile and say, should have done it more like me. It is not proud. Love doesn't tell others how great you are. It is not rude. Love treats people with respect, no matter how you're feeling or how they're treating you. You're not rude to that person. It is not self-seeking. So often... (laughs) We try to manipulate people into doing things that benefit us. That's not love. It is not easily angered. You think the best of others and you don't make assumptions. So often we jump to conclusions. Somebody says one thing and you quickly go, well, I can't believe they did that and they believe that about me. They're terrible. That's not love. Don't do that. It keeps no record of wrongs. This is the big one. So many of us have this little running list in our mind of it's just one more time that that person let me down or hung me out to dry or said another cutting word. I can't believe they did this. And we keep that list in the back of our minds. If you have a list, you don't have love. Okay? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Love wants good for everybody, not bad on them. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You see, a love is a lot more than a feeling. It's more than emotion. It's more than an attitude. It's a choice to act in the best interest of others. An action is the key word of that definition. You know, as Paul defines it here, this is a heck of a lot more than just feeling warm fuzzies towards that person. That's hard to do towards your enemy. But you can act in these loving ways even towards people who have hurt you. And so it's this action that John picks up in the letter he writes that we call 1 John. It's towards the end of the Bible. It's not his Gospel. 1 John 3.16 
says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. That's an action. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's an action. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We can't just say that we're praying for a person and move on. We have to be willing to step into situations and demonstrate that we actually love them. As I was chewing on this message, the big idea that came to my mind is basically this. Love is the opposite of selfishness. Right? You have love and you have self. Love is outward. Selfishness is inward. Love is focused on others' needs. You see needs in front of you and you want to meet them. Selfishness says, how can you meet my needs? And because of that, love is costly. It's not easy. It's not, it takes sometimes your money. It takes your time. It takes your energy. Selfishness says, you owe me something. You, I did this for you, you do this for me. Love is the way of God. Selfishness is the way of our sinful nature. It's kind of our default when we're born. And unless we give our lives to Jesus, that's where our hearts always are. We can try to love people, and the world loves those who are their own and they, who they like, for a season, as long as it's easy. But the way of God is that we love people even when it's hard, in every season, in every circumstance, the exact same way that God loves us. Jesus commands us to love others. And the world tells us to love ourselves and do whatever feels right. So it shouldn't be any surprise that the world is got a full-out attack on love and the definition of love from a godly sense. It's trying to destroy what God has created for us, what God wants for us. And so it's made a mess of the definition, and it's allowed people to say, I love, but that love looks nothing like what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13. And sometimes we fall for it because, well, I deserve that. So with everything I've shared today, I think it's pretty clear for all of us that we need to continue in this virtue of love. We need to love God, love our neighbor, love one another, and even love our enemies. And we need to give this love more than lip service. We have to actually live it out through our actions. But here's the thing. It's so hard to muster up the energy to do that day in and day out, even with that person who just keeps pick, 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 picking. I just can't do it anymore. We don't have the willpower to make it happen on our own. That's what we all know. We've tried, right? Nod your head if you've tried in your own strength to love difficult people and you just got to the end of your rope. A few of you? Yeah. But we have good news, okay? We have a source that gives us love, right? 
yes, first and foremost, we love God, but we have to also understand God loves us. And we have to tap into that source to love other people. As I was thinking about those times where I've had a really hard time loving others, it's typically when I'm dry and tired and worn out and I'm trying to love them on my own strength and I just give up. But when I'm in a really good place with God, when I'm praying and I'm reading the Bible and I'm connected with Him and I just feel the presence of God in my life day in and day out, when people do cutting things to me, it's so much easier to just be like, man, they're having a bad day. Forgive them, love them, don't keep a record of wrongs, move on. Like ultimately, our ability to love others the way that God has commanded us to. In our sinful nature, we can't do it. We're made for selfishness. But God says, when you commit your life to me, he sets us free from that sin nature. He sets us free from that selfishness. He fills our hearts with his love. And that's the only way that we can ever live this virtue out the way that God calls us to. So we have to connect to Him. I don't want today's message to be this impossible bar for you where I'm just setting you up for this aspirational goal that you can never attain. You can attain it. You just can't do it in your own strength and in your own willpower. You can only do it by saying, God, I need Thee every hour because that's the only way I'm getting through this. Through our connection with God. Here's the final verse I want to leave you with. 1 John 4.16. He writes, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. If you're struggling to love others well, don't focus on them. Focus on God. Remember all the ways that He's been patient with you. All the sins that He's forgiven you of. The record of wrong that He does not keep. All the times He's protected for you. He's cared for you. He's helped you when you were down. And allow that love to flow through you, even to those who are hard to love. Jesus warned us that as the last day approaches, the love of many would grow cold. And we see that all around us, don't we? We live in a world where love and kindness and generosity is failing. But we as the church of Jesus Christ, the community of faith, we're called to be this beacon of light, to live counterculturally, to carry this virtue, this signal that the world is like, why are you doing that? Because Jesus calls us to do things differently. Sure, their love can grow cold, but ours needs to grow white hot. And the only way that happens is when we fall in love with Jesus and keep falling in love with Him. If we want to be godly people, if we want to be righteous, if we want to be like God or representatives of God to the world around us, then the most important virtue that we can demonstrate to the world is that of love. And it's not the messed up, twisted, distorted version that this world passes off as love. But it's truly laying down our lives, our preferences, doing the costly things, sometimes overlooking things that just make our skin crawl and go, I can't believe you said that or did that. But I'm still going to love you as a person 
and love you so much that I want to see your eternal destiny changed. That's what we're called to be. That is the virtue signal that Jesus told us would be the definition of who his followers are to the watching world. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray?